You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Attaboy Clarence. Lovely of you to join me. Definitely in sleuthing mode this week as I tell you about a pair of Agatha Christie movies from the Golden Age that'll light your fire. Another round of Who the Hell is That Hollywood Legend is incoming and even an Agatha Christie old-time radio double bill coming up. So if you're a fan of the Grand Dame of Crime, then stay tuned. For now, let's start things off with a smile because I think we all need one. Take it away, Louis. Oh, when you're smiling. When you're smiling. The whole smiles with you, baby, baby. Yes, when you laughing, when you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through, but when you crying. on the rain So stop your sighing baby And be happy again Yes and keep on smiling Keep on smiling baby And I hope
And that was the wonderful Louis Armstrong with When You're Smiling, The Whole World Smiles With You. This is an actual recording from my house this morning. What a time to run out. And why run out? Now there's a new giant-size Instant Maxwell House. A really big jar of coffee. New giant-size Instant Maxwell House gives you cups and cups and cups. What else does it give you? Dozens of extra cups of the coffee with that warm bean flavor. What, do you like a drink that warms my beans? Warm bean flavor because it's made from coffee beans still warm from roasting. That's why new Instant Maxwell House is the freshest tasting coffee yet. So to make sure you've always got plenty of coffee for the man in your house, get the new giant size Instant Maxwell House. You won't have to run out again. Scintillating advice. Well, a wonderful trip now back in time to see if you can guess the identity of the Hollywood star trying to mask their voice. A little bit more of a difficult one than usual for those of you who regularly manage to pick up on the vocal clues. You'll see why as we go on and play. Who the hell is that Hollywood legend? Panel, as you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, we go to a different form of questioning. You ask one question at a time, in turn moving clockwise, and we begin with Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. Well, that was rather wild applause. Are you a living American blonde? A living... <laughs> Did I hear the question, are you a living American blonde? That's right. No! One thousand nine to go, Mr. Kovac. Are you a sexagenarian? <laughs> or younger, either one. I don't know, 50, 60, I don't know. Uh, are you above uh, 50 years of age? Are you Ow. more than 50 years of age? Yes! Miss Francis? Are you in motion pictures? Are you in motion pictures? Yes! Mr. Sir? Above 50. Are you a comedian? Yes! Miss Kilgallen? Do you also appear on the stage? Or have yes. you appeared on the stage? Yes, is the answer to that, Mr. Kovac? This is either Walter Brennan or Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> uh, are you appearing on the stage uh, currently? No! That's for you. Two down and eight to go, Miss Francis. Have you been in motion pictures for many, many years? Yes. Mr. Zerk. Have you got a son who is also a motion picture actor? No. That's three down and seven to go, Miss Kilgallen. Do you go as far back as the silent movies? Yes. Mr. Kovac. Do you have a current movie? You have a... Yes. Miss Francis. A current movie from silent picture days, Rin Tin Tin. Well, are you in the school of comedians of Harold Lloyd? Yes. Mr. Sir? Was there a picture recently made based on allegedly the story of your life? Yes. We'll stop it there. Have you got a clue? Yes, this star is mainly known for their work in silent cinema, which makes it a little bit more tricky, I grant you. But I'm sure the wise among you will have picked up a few clues. Answer coming up later. Darling, je vous aime beaucoup. Je ne sais pas what to do. You know you've completely stolen my heart morning noon and night time too to you wondering 
to do That's the way I felt Right from the start Ah, Shetty My love for you is Trey Trey Wish my French were good enough I tell you so much more But I hope that you come free All the things you mean to me Darling Jevons and cool I love you, yes I do Wish my French were good enough I tell you so much more But I hope that you come free All the things you mean to me Darling, je vous I love you, yes I do And that was Nat King Cole with Darling, Je vous aime beaucoup. I'm sure I murdered that to put you all in the mood for love. Of course, we won't be remaining in that particular mood, especially when there's murder in the air. Yes, even back in the Golden Age, the public couldn't get enough of Agatha Christie, by far the world's most famous crime writer. I am an avowed fan of And Then There Were None, as you know, the fabulous 1945 adaptation of Ten Little Indians, and the first real Christie movie, I think, to really nail that star-studded attraction quality of the Christie movies that ran throughout the 70s and beyond. You had to wait over a decade for the next truly superb one, which appeared in 1957, bearing an even more impressive roster of talent, scripted and directed by Billy White. It once again filled the screen with a glittering array of names, including Charles Lawton, Marlena Dietrich, Tyrone Power, Elsa Lanchester, Henry Daniel, John Williams, Ian Wolfe, and the great Una O'Connor. One of the all-time great mystery thrillers with one of the all-time great plot revelations. This is, of course, Witness for the Prosecution. Silence. Be upstanding in court. All persons who have anything to do before my lords, the Queen's Justices of Oya and Termina, and general jail delivery for the jurisdiction of the Central Criminal Court, draw near and give your attendance. God save the Queen. Sir Wilfred Roberts, played by Charles Lawton, is asked to represent Leonard Vole played by Tyrone Power, in a case that has the nation gripped. Vole has been accused of romancing and then murdering 
elderly rich widow, Emily French. The case seems almost watertight, but Vole is determined to prove his innocence, though, and entreats Sir Wilfred to use his considerable skills in order to clear his name. Young man, you may or may not have murdered a middle-aged widow, but you certainly saved the life of an elderly barrister. <laughs> I haven't murdered anybody. It's absurd. Christine, that's my wife. She thought I may be implicated and that I needed a lawyer. That's why I went to see Mr. Mayhew. Now, he thinks he needs a lawyer, and now I have two lawyers. Well, I saw in the paper that poor Mrs. French had been found dead with her head bashed in. And it also said in the papers that the police were very anxious to interview me since I'd visited Mrs. French that evening. So, well, naturally, I went along to the police station. Did they caution you? They asked me if I'd like to make a statement and said that they'd write it down and that it might be used against me in court. Would that be cautioning me? Well, they were very polite, and they seemed quite satisfied. They seemed satisfied, Mr. Vole. He thinks that he made a statement, and that's the end of it. Isn't it obvious to you, Mr. Vole, that you will be regarded as the principal and logical suspect in this case? Sir Wilfred begins to build a very compelling case for Vole's innocence, relying in large part upon the testimony of Vole's glamorous wife, Christine, upon whose evidence Vole's alibi relies. The rug is pulled out from beneath Sir Wilfred, though, when Christine suddenly decides to testify against her husband and states quite plainly that her husband is a murderer. You're aware, of course, that when I put you in the witness box, you will be sworn and you will testify under oath. Yes. Leonard came home at 9.26 precisely and did not go out again. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Is that better? Mrs. Fowle, do you love your husband? Leonard thinks I do. Well, do you? Am I already under oath? Mrs. Vole, whatever your gambit may be, do you know that under British law you cannot be called to give testimony damaging to your husband? How very convenient. But why has Christine suddenly done this? And can a wife legally testify against her husband? Turns out that the Voles have a few skeletons in their cupboard, and it's up to Sir Wilfred to determine what they are. Woman's up to something, but what? Uh, the prosecution will break her down in no time when I put her in the witness box. Let me ask you something. Do you believe Leonard Vole is innocent? Do you? Do you? I'm not sure. Can't honestly talk about what happens because I suspect that there are more than a few of you out there who don't know what happens in the story. One of those rare examples of a film that improves upon its source material. I remember reading the short story upon which this was based and never once imagining that it could be a very cinematic outing. Should have known better, of course, because Billy Wilder was a master of turning any story into gripping screen fare, and that's very much the case here. Every single scene in this is bursting with intrigue and drama and simmering tension and high comedy. Yes, this is an extremely funny movie as well as an extremely involving one. It's a very fun movie to watch. Largely, that is due to Charles Lawton and his constant dueling with his real-life wife, Elsa Lanchester. Their scenes are pure gold. She plays the nurse trying to tame him into good health following a heart attack, and he spends the entire film ignoring her advice and rushing towards an early grave. The performances all round, though, are brilliant. There's not a dud here. Special props... To Marlene Dietrich, of course. For those of you who know, then you'll know why. I mean, the prospect alone, seeing the great Billy Wilder producing and directing an Agatha Christie mystery and adding in that scintillating vein of black humour, for which he's rightfully renowned, should give you enough of a reason to scurry off and watch this immediately. The story itself is also a damn good reason to watch it as soon as you can. 
to then crown these factors by having the whole gorgeous concoction peopled by the starriest ensemble out there means that not watching this is kind of unforgivable. It's very fun, it's hugely satisfying in terms of plot, and if nothing else, it'll most certainly demonstrate that Agatha Christie on screen really can work when you give it to the right people. 1957's Witness for the Prosecution makes a very, very strong case for being the best of the screen Christie movies. Go and give it a rewatch. Tell me what you think. Now, one of the Christie characters who's been seen less on screen than many others is Miss Marple. Her character doesn't really lend herself well to cinematic intrigue. If you've read the books, especially her first stories, which were later collected into one volume entitled The Thirteen Problems, you'll know that she's a very passive kind of character. Usually she's only really on the sidelines listening and absorbing all the details until the third act when she suddenly lays out the complete solution without ever seeming to have gotten involved. It definitely works for the character but really it suits the page much better than it suits the screen. But how do you translate such a famous amateur sleuth into something that movie audiences would pay to see? Well, you do what MGM did in 1961, and you turn the mild-mannered observer into an elderly spinster with attitude. You plant her squarely into the action from the off, and most importantly of all, you give the part to Margaret Rutherford. Tickets, please. A woman has been strangled. I saw it. I beg your pardon? A man strangled a woman in a train. I saw it out there. Strangled? Yes, strangled. You must do something about it at once. Madam, don't you think perhaps you had a little nap and maybe had a bad dream? Young man, I was not dreaming. I saw it. What are you going to do about it? Well, uh, look, we'll we'll be in Blackhampton in about five minutes. I'll report it as soon as we get there. Thank you. Could I could I have your name and address? Then? Yes, of course. Miss Jane Marple. M- Marple. Marple. <laughs> Her first outing of four is Murder, She Said, loosely based on the 1957 novel 450 from Paddington. Now, I won't spend the entire review pointing out the many differences between the novel and the film. I'm here to tell you about the film, and hence shall it be. Miss Marple, played by Margaret Rutherford, is on a train when she witnesses, on a train running parallel to hers, a young woman being strangled. By the time she's raised the alarm, the other train has sped off and no one believes her. We have come to the conclusion that what you saw on the train was uh, a man and a woman... Yes, as I said. Perhaps they were honeymooners. Inspector, I may be what is termed a spinster, but I do know the difference between horseplay and murder. Of course, madam, uh, Miss Marple, but the fact remains that there's been a thorough search of every train and no hospital has treated any woman such as you describe. Of course not. She was dead. Further, a complete search has been made of every inch of the tracks for the whole length of the line. Negative. Oh, so you don't believe me. I didn't mean to imply that. You certainly did. Not at all. I, uh... What then? I... I assure you, Miss Marple, that a woman cannot be murdered on a busy train a few minutes before a station without our finding out about it. I'm quite sure you mean well, Inspector. But if you imagine that I am going to sit back and let everybody regard me as a dotty old maid, you are very much mistaken. The body of the young woman seems to have disappeared into thin air and no evidence of a crime can be found. What to do? Well, of course, you drag your good friend, Mr. Stringer, a mild-mannered librarian played by Rutherford's real-life husband, Stringer Davis, along as you search for clues and find them Miss Marple does. In fact, all evidence seems to point to a large, strange house near the very point at which the murder took place. 
It's an odd residence inhabited by a motley and mysterious collection of folks who all seem to have a skeleton or two in their cupboards. Joining the house as a maid, Miss Marple begins to investigate the dark goings-on. Your weight isn't quite evenly distributed. I'll have you know that I won the Ladies' Open Handicap in 1921. Really? I'm sure you have many things to do. Not at all. I'm most interested. We've never had a golf-playing maid before. You may have heard that this is the age of the common woman. You hooked. I'm aware of it. You know something? What? I believe you pulled those shots on purpose. Alexander, if you wish to be helpful at all, will you kindly look for the hook? while I look for the sluts. Agatha Christie hated this film, and of course she would. You can't take a character that was by then over 30 years old, transform her completely, and expect the original creator to be delighted about it. You can understand why Christie was turned off. That said, Margaret Rutherford's portrayal of Miss Marple is so wonderfully realized that who could possibly stay mad for long? There's a reason why Margaret Rutherford has since become indelibly associated with everyone's ideal image of Miss Marple, and that's because she turns what really is a meek little lamb of a character into more of a feminist icon version. I mean, here you have an actress nearing 70 years old, sleuthing around in the dark, golf club in hand, and giving the killer a quite formidable formidable opponent. She absolutely takes no crap at all and carries the whole story with a wink and a grin. If you don't shut those windows, you'll be fired. In that case, I shall require four weeks' wages in lieu of notice. Get out of my sight, woman! With pleasure! I have to say, my personal favourite of the Rutherford Marples is Murder Most Foul as it was the one I first saw when I was very, very young, and which has a more compelling mystery at its centre. This one, though, really set the bar in terms of intrigue and, crucially, the first ride out for Rutherford. It can't be stated enough. She is sheer brilliance. Whether she's taking on the men who seem determined to pass her off as a dotty old spinster, or her constant one-upping of the police's valiant attempts at solving the crime on their own, her relationships are very well done. Firstly, her friendship with Mr. Stringer is just so charming. You can tell that they'll never, ever let it blossom into romance, but that's kind of okay with both of them. They just love being there for each other. Apparently, it was very much like their real-life love affair, which is just the sweetest story. By Jove, the police will certainly want to investigate now. Well, according to them, there is nothing to investigate. Oh, surely, in the light of our theory, a fresh search. Definitely. But this time, we will conduct our own. Eh? Yes, Mr. Stringer. I recommend a hearty breakfast tomorrow. You and I are going to take an early morning walk. Then you have her relationship with Inspector Craddock, played by the great Charles Tingwell. It spans across the four films, and while you do get a little bit annoyed by the fact that by film four, he's still doubting her skills as a sleuth, it's never less than charming to see the ways in which she upends his expectations by the movie's end. It could very well have been one of those relationships that played it simple or for laughs, but the producers wisely allow Miss Marple and Inspector Craddock to develop a lovely sense of trust and respect for each other, which turns him into a really lovable little double act. So yes, I know Agatha herself wasn't the biggest fan of this movie Marple, but put aside your prejudices and enjoy them as a mystery fan, and you'll definitely find yourself falling for Rutherford and her completely unique take on the character. Murder, she said, is the template, so do go seek that one out first. But do check out the other three as well. Murder Most Foul, Murder Ahoy, and Murder at the Gallop. 
And fun fact, it also features an appearance by Joan Hickson, who became British TV's definitive Miss Marple in a BBC television series that stuck very faithfully to the books. Radio entertainment this week comes from the pen of Agatha Christie herself. Yes, even on the radio, Christie was everywhere during the Golden Age. So prolific were her stories on the air that I'm delighted to be able to present for you today a double bill of classic Agatha Christie tales. First up, we're going to the Campbell Playhouse, where Orson Welles takes on the role of Hercule Poirot for the murder of Roger Ackroyd, also starring Edna May Oliver. Ray Collins and Everett Sloan. And then we're going over to the Mole Mystery Theatre for their superb production of Witness for the Prosecution. It's a mystery double bill then in the company of two Agatha Christie classics. See you afterwards. The makers of Campbell Soups present The Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Orson Welles. Tonight we broadcast our version of what is generally regarded as one of the greatest of the modern mystery murder novels. In some peculiar fashion, it seems to have become necessary to defend the murder mystery as a form of entertainment. Heavy artillery is brought up in its behalf. President Wilson, it is proclaimed loudly, could not go to sleep or could go to sleep, one does not remember the point exactly, until a certain number of conflicting clues had managed to efface the days from his proof. And with a mysterious solved only after suspicion has been aimed at every adult in the neighborhood, he's not particularly shameful. I have never understood the need for this defense. Murder mysteries are, among other things, our most moral form of entertainment. The wrongdoer is regularly apprehended. If he is not, I have incredibly missed some fascinating black sheep of an author in a flock otherwise startlingly white. And one learns an obvious lesson that to be suspected wrongfully is in due course to be triumphantly cleared of suspicion. Life doesn't always proceed according to this admirable pattern. The apologists would do better to defend life, I sometimes think. To help us solve the mystery of the murder of Roger Ackroyd here tonight... We are fortunate in having a very powerful ally, a most distinguished lady and one of your favorite actresses. A lady in whose ears a nation's applause is still ringing for her latest brilliant success in Drums Along the Mohawk, Miss Edna May Oliver. But before we delve into the mysteries of this night's doings, Ernest Chappell has a comment to make on something which appears to be no mystery at all. Mr. Chappell. Thank you, Orson Welles. I'd like to ask all of you if you'll do this. The next time you're out in the car driving along the highway, just note the great number of eating places that display as their main invitation to you the words chicken dinners. The reason, of course, is simply that the proprietors of these eating places know by long experience that to nearly all of us, one dish that is a symbol of good eating is chicken. Now, because chicken is a favorite dish with nearly everyone... It's really no mystery at all why Campbell's Chicken Soup continues to grow steadily in popularity. You see, in every drop of the glistening golden broth, there's the rich chicken flavor you like so much. Steeped in deep chicken flavor, too, is fluffy white rice in every fragrant plateful. 
And you'll also enjoy the pieces of melting tender chicken meat that Campbell's adds. Yes, here is chicken soup, deep and full and rich. And you'll appreciate that from your first brimming spoonful. If you've already enjoyed this homey old-fashioned chicken soup as Campbell's make it, won't you remember to have it again soon? And if you haven't yet tried it, won't you do, do so at dinner tomorrow night? Because I promise you, just as sure as you like chicken, you'll like Campbell's chicken soup. And now our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd with our guest of the evening, Edna May Oliver. And ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, I think you'd like to know that we have with us in the studio tonight, as a surprise visitor, <clears throat> none other than the celebrated Belgian detective, Mr. Hercule Poirot. <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, I bid you good evening. Uh, if we had time, which we have not, I'm sure nothing would please us more than to hear from Mr. Poirot, unfortunately... Why unfortunately when we have here a microphone? But, Mr. Poirot, you, you don't understand... I understand that... only that since my arrival in your country some weeks ago, I observed that there is circulate an impression of my person which I must now publicly refute. I trust that the embarrassment of my presence here tonight in Mr. Wells' studio will ensure from him an honest and lifelike portrait. It has been said that I am a little man. Regard for yourself that this is not so. I have five feet two inches of high. My head is perhaps egg-shaped, and I carry it perhaps a little to one side, the left, but my eyes shine green when I am excited. Beyond this, my mustache are the largest in Europe, and my force is in my brain and not in my feet. If these things are made clear, and Mr. Wells is a little tribute to Hercule Poirot, I will be satisfied. The results of my little uh, gray cells will speak for themselves. If you will show me where I am to sit, please. I thank you. Uh, uh, this is Mr. Poirot, Miss Oliver. How do you do? Miss Oliver, you have often wanted to meet me, I am sure. I compliment you. Uh, please, please, Mr. Poirot. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Well, only to start, we'll give you some idea of the little village of King's Abbot, of which I have for so many years been the leading, I must admit, also the only physician and surgeon. My name, by the way, is Shepherd, James Shepherd. We have a large railway station, a small post office, two rival general stores, very few able-bodied men, a staggering number of unmarried ladies, none of whom are getting any younger, and an amazing number of retired military officers, all of whom are getting older. In fact, the only newcomer for many months lives next door to me, concerning whom little is known, despite the earnest and tireless investigations carried on in respect to him by my sister Caroline. Caroline and her little group of earnest ferrets, or maiden ladies like herself, have been forced to content themselves with the simple fact of his nationality, which is alien, of his name, which is Poirot, the obvious fact that he putters around his garden all day growing cucumbers, and the suspicion, based chiefly on malicious deductions, he's a retired hairdresser. Let's see. Now, the main house of any importance, King's Abbot, is Fernley Hall, owned by Roger Ackroyd, who's always looked more like a country squire than any country squire could really look, but who's... Actually, an immensely wealthy manufacturer of wagon wheels, nearly 50 years of age, rubicon of face and genial of manner, and general the life and soul of our, to this week, the peaceful village. The other house of any importance has been left to Mrs. Ferrars by her late husband. Uh, Mrs. Ferrars died on the night of the 16th of September, a little less than a week ago. It seems longer than that. I was sent over for 8 o'clock in the morning of the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She'd been dead some hours. I turned to my home as soon as I decently could, looking forward happily to the warm breakfast I had missed, and rather unhappily to the certainty of a relentless cross-examination by my sister Caroline. Is that you, James? 
What on earth are you doing out there in the hall? Just hanging up my overcoat, my dear. Oh, Mrs. Farrow's died in her sleep, didn't she? Bacon is cold. How did you know? Out with the dawn securing information instead of warming the bacon, is that it? I suppose you're going to tell me she died of heart failure. Annie told me. The milkman told her. He had it from Farrow's cook. Since you are bound to hear sooner or later, Caroline, from the greengrocer or the postman, I might as well tell you myself. She died of an overdose of sleeping medicine. She hadn't sleeping well later. Nonsense. She took it on purpose. Well, now, why on earth should Mrs. Ferrars wish to commit suicide? A widow still fairly young, very well off, good health, nothing to do but enjoy life. And looking forward to marrying Roger Ackroyd. Don't forget to leave that out. That's an item of fact only in your local gossip circle. A fact's a fact. And there is such a thing as remorse, James. Even if you're as wealthy as Mrs. Farrar's. Remorse? I have always been convinced she poisoned her husband, and I'm more than ever convinced of it now. If you'd arranged an inquest a year ago, as I suggested, you you're should... You're talking nonsense, Caroline. Then you're absolutely satisfied it was an accident. I'm satisfied this bacon is not going to get any warmer by itself, and it's time I went to the surgery to see my patient. All right, James. You don't have to be grumpy about it. Oh, by the way, Mr. Aykroyd's butler, Parker called. What about Mr. Aykroyd wants to know if you'll dine with him this evening. He says he'd regard it as a great favor if you'd cancel any other engagement. Of course, I'll go and... Don't worry, Caroline. I may tell you all about the dinner tomorrow. Oh, then I'll give you something to tell Mr. Aykroyd tonight. Rafe Payton is back. Rafe Payton? Yes, and he's staying at the Dog and Whistle. I know he's taking particular pains to be sure that Mr. Aykroyd doesn't find out about it. I wouldn't dream of telling him. Roger Aykroyd's relations with his steps on his own affair. Believe me, Caroline, according to every interpretation except your own... I can't help it if people tell me things. In answer to questions. Well, you'd better rush along to that precious surgery, girls. You've got four patients waiting. How do you know? Well, one can't help seeing through a window. If one is looking through a window... The distance from my house to Fernley Hall, Roger Aykroyd's home, is a little over two miles. I remember that evening as I walked that the subject of Caroline's latest piece of gossip kept returning to my mind. Rafe Payton was in King's Abbott. Rafe Payton, whom I'd known and liked since he was a child. Adopted by Aykroyd upon the death of his mother, he'd grown up to be a handsome but what our narrow little village regarded as a rather wild young man. There'd been many stormy scenes between his stepfather and himself before he finally left for London. According to Caroline, he was secretly engaged to Flora Aykroyd, Roger Aykroyd's niece, who, with her mother, was now living in Fernley Hall. Uh, according to Caroline, I say, and Caroline's information, I'm afraid, is always exact, however illegitimate her source may be. What's the trouble, Aykroyd? A bit under the weather? Yes, Doctor. I've had a little of that pain out of food lately. You must give me some more of those tablets of yours. I thought as much, Aykroyd. I brought some up with me. My bag in the hall. I guess them. No, don't trouble. Um, make certain that window's closed, will you, Shepard? Of course. Well, the latch one's open. I'll put the latch across, will you? All right. I see what's really bothering you, Aykroyd. The, uh, the door's closed, isn't it? Yes. Shepard, nobody knows what I've gone through in the last 24 hours. What's the trouble? You're an old friend, Doctor. My oldest friend, perhaps. You attended Ashley Ferris in his last illness, didn't you? Yes, I did. Did it ever enter your mind that he might have been poisoned? Well, frankly, Aykroyd, I don't think I... He was poisoned. By whom? His wife. She told me so herself yesterday. Yesterday? You mean a few hours before she died, she told you? Yes. Some weeks ago, I asked Mrs. Ferris to marry me. She refused. Last week, I asked her again, and she consented. Yesterday, I called upon her. I noticed that she'd been very strange in her manner for some days. 
Now, without the least warning, she broke down completely. She told me everything. Her hatred of her swine of a husband, her growing love for me, and then, a year ago, the dreadful means she had taken to free herself. It was poison, Shepard. Murder in cold blood. Murder? Are you sure, Eckler? That wasn't all. It seems there's one person who's known all along what she did, who's been blackmailing her for huge sums. It was the strain of that that drove her nearly mad. Who was the man? She wouldn't tell me his name. Have you any suspicion? I don't dare have a suspicion. Something she said made me think that the person in question might actually be a member of my household. But that can't be so. I, I won't let it be so. I must have misunderstood her. What'd you say to her? What could I say? She made me that promise to do nothing for 24 hours, and she refused to give me the name of the scoundrel who'd been blackmailing her. I never dreamt she'd kill herself. Shepard, will you hand me that letter on the table there, in the blue envelope? Uh, this one? Thanks. It's from her. It arrived during dinner. She must have written it just before she... You think she wrote you the little bit she didn't tell you, is that it? Name of the man. Yes, I think so. I've got to open it, and yet I, I'm afraid. What's that? What? I thought the letter the door gave a bit. Yes? I'll see if there's anyone there. No one. Uh, nerves, I expect. Are you sure you shut the window? Yes, it's closed. Well, I'll read it. If I read it to you, it won't seem so bad. I won't be facing it alone. No matter what the name. My dear, my very dear Roger, a life calls for a life. I see that. I saw it in your face this afternoon. So I'm taking the only road open to me. I leave to you the punishment of the person who made my life a hell on earth for the last year. I would not tell you the name this afternoon, but I propose to write it to you now, dear Roger, now that I have nothing more to fear. Will you forgive me, Shepard, but I see I must read this alone. It was meant for my eyes and my eyes alone. Do you think that's wise, Roger? I'd rather wait. Well, if you insist on not letting me help you... If you must put it that way, yes, my dear friend, I do insist. I'm sorry. I left Fernley Hall at a quarter to nine. From Fernley Hall to my house, it takes, as a rule, about three quarters of an hour. The night was the moon shining, and I did it in less. From the road, I noticed the lights blazing in our parlor... Caroline was entertaining. Through the window, I caught sight of an egg-shaped head partially covered with suspiciously black hair, two immense mustaches, and a pair of watchful eyes. James, come in, come in, come in. You're just in time for hot milk and crackers. Oh, thank you, Caroline. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. This is my brother, Dr. Shepard. I am enchanted. James, this is Mr. Hercule Poirot. How do you do, sir? Mr. Poirot is our new neighbor. If I may be permitted the one slight correction, my name is Hercule Poirot. Your good sister proceeds on the familiar English assumption that we are not English, do not know how to pronounce our own silly names. <laughs> He's just making fun of me, James. He has a very dry wit. We've had quite an interesting conversation. I question that it was two-sided. And do you know what Mr. Poirot told me? He's a policeman. Uh, pardon, mademoiselle. Not yet. I see. Do you appreciate Hercule Poirot? It is true earth. The name Poirot, mademoiselle, is known today in every continent, every land, nay, in every city of the world. 
I am become the more, the last word. I am as much a specialist as an early street physician. Well, that's what I said, didn't I? A detective. Yeah, consulting detective. That's what I said. I'm afraid, Mr. Poirot, you find little to occupy a man of your talents in this village. Mr. Poirot tells me what he's looking for just now is peace and quiet. Precisely, mademoiselle. That and the correct soil, which you have in so great abundance here in King's Abbot for the cultivation of cucumbers. Oh, I'll answer it. Probably Mrs. Bates and her rheumatism. Never mind, Caroline. I'll take it. Oh, all right. Hello. Hello. What? What's that? Certainly, of course. Of course I will at once. What, what is it? It's Parker, the butler, calling from Fernley. Just found Roger Ackroyd. Murdered. Dr. Shepard. Where is he, Parker? I beg your pardon, sir. Mr. Ackroyd, don't stand there staring at me. Have you notified the police? The police, sir. What's the matter with you, Parker? You call me to tell me your master's been murdered. Your master murdered? Didn't you telephone me not five minutes ago and tell me Mr. Ackroyd's been found murdered? Me? Oh, no, sir. My English is not of the best, Dr. Shepard, but there seems to be a peculiar misapprehension. Why, Dr. Shepard, I never... I'll give you the exact words I heard just now on the phone. This is Parker, the butler at Fernley speaking. Will you please come at once, sir? Mr. Ackroyd has been murdered. But, Doctor, I... Where is Mr. Ackroyd, Parker? Why, he's in the study, If you don't mind waiting down here a moment, Monsieur Poirot, I won't be a minute. This way, sir. But of course, of course. I, uh, I'd rather not intrude on him, sir, if you don't mind. Well, I will, then. Door's locked. Oh, Mr. Ackroyd must have locked himself in and possibly just dropped off to sleep, sir. Ackroyd! Ackroyd! Look here, Parker. I'd have wrecked this door in, or rather we are. But, Dr. Shepard... I'll take a responsibility. Oh, if you say so, sir. All right, here we go. Together now. What? Inspector, head is sideways, permitting the dagger to penetrate the jugular. Death was instantaneous. Ah. Has the body been moved? Beyond making certain that life is extinct, I haven't disturbed the body in any way. And you didn't touch the dagger, did you, Doctor? No, Inspector. No, good. Well, we'll want that for fingerprints. Ah, rummy-looking thing, isn't it? Foreign-looking. Maurice Silver. Mr. Ackroyd was quite a collector. There are his silver cases over against the wall. Eh? Who are you? My name's Raymond. And Mr. Ackroyd's private secretary. That's right, Inspector. He's been with Mr. Ackroyd almost two years now. Oh, very well. Now, uh, <clears throat> Doctor, how long should you say he's been dead? Half an hour at least, perhaps longer. And you had to break down the door, eh? What about the window? The uh, English people, they have a mania for the fresh air. The big air is all very well outside where it belongs. Why admit it to the hour? Hey, who are you? How did you get in here? You call yourself, unfortunate man, an inspector of police, and you say to me, who am I? Hercule Poirot, master detective, possessed of the finest brain in Europe, known in every continent, in every land, in every city. Not in my part of the world, you ain't. I never heard of you. How about you, Monsieur Poirot, inspector? It's my house the phone call came, Mr. Ackroyd's death. Oh, oh, well, all right then. You can stay. But this is my case, and don't you forget it. Now then. When was Mr. Ackroyd last seen alive? I don't know, probably by me, and I left, let me see, a little before nine. Mr. Ackroyd was certainly alive at half past nine. I, I heard him in here talking. Who to, Mr. Raymond? I don't know. I just heard his voice. But I know it was 9.30. You didn't hear any of their conversation, did you, Mr. Raymond? I did catch a fragment of it. 
But it did strike me as a trifle odd. Remember, please, the words exact. It is very important. I'm not sure that I can. But the words exact. Uh, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Parrott. Who's conducting this case? You or me? Now then, Mr. Raymond, what was these words you heard Mr. Ackroyd say at 9.30? Well, come on. I'd swear under oath the exact words were... The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I find it impossible to accede to your request. Thank you, Mr. Raymond, very much. I, uh, I beg pardon, Inspector. Well, what is it, Parker? I just remembered. Miss Flora saw Mr. Ackroyd later than 9.30, about quarter of ten. She was just coming out of this room. You mean she was just closing the study door? No, sir. She'd already closed the door when I saw her. She told me Mr. Ackroyd was not to be disturbed again tonight. Where's Miss Flora? Upstairs in her room. Shall I ask her to come down? No, no. Uh, I'll go up. One moment. If I might be so humble, Monsieur Inspector, could I ask our friend Parker for a little information? Well, well, what is it? Thank you for your so gracious permission, Inspector. Tell me, Parker, is this room exactly as it was when you entered it with Dr. Shepard? Well, to tell you the truth, sir... I felt myself that this chair here was drawn out a little more. It has been puzzling. The grandfather chair between the door and the window. That's right, sir. That's very curious. No one would want to sit in a chair in such a position. What are you talking about? When a man wants to sit, he sits, don't he? Who pushed it back in place, I wonder? Did you, Parker? No, sir. No, sir. I, I was too upset at seeing the master and all. It, it isn't important, is it, sir? It is completely unimportant. That's why it is so interesting. Very late for breakfast, James. I was up quite late, Karen. I'm afraid I forgot your natural anxiety to learn details you're not supposed to know. Well, don't worry about me, James. Mr. Poirot was working in his cucumbers at daybreak this morning. 6.37 it was. And I've been with him ever since. Good. Perhaps you have some information for me, Caroline. Perhaps I have. Perhaps I have. Or are you going to pretend you know what suddenly occurred to Mr. Poirot in the night? So that he couldn't sleep for an hour or two after he got home? Inasmuch as I hadn't seen our friend since he went to bed. Well, I don't feel very much like telling you either. If I didn't know that he'd tell you himself, I don't think I would. Well, he was worrying about the prints of some shoes outside the window. The way the rubber studs were worn down, he says, should mean something to him. But he doesn't know what. Did you explain it to him, Caroline? Hasn't the cook been of any help to you, or the milkman, or the Ladies' Aid Society? You needn't always be facetious, James. Hasn't the bacon needn't always be cold, I dare say, but it is, and so am I. Not cold, but facetious. James, James, you know what Mr. Poirot said? He said I had the makings of a born detective in me. He particularly admires my wonderful instinct into human nature. And he told me a lot about the little gray cells of the brain. He says his are of the first quality, slightly above that, in fact. I'm sure they are. He thinks you're very intelligent, too. Ah, good morning, good shepherd. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Poirot. A beautiful morning, is it not? See, how is this for a cucumber? Beautiful, now, my friend, it is yours. I give it to you. Altogether, my good shepherd, I have a wonderful morning. Everywhere I learn things new and wonderful things. And all the time the gray sails of Hercule Poirot, they are working, working. Miss Caroline, she tells me so much about this Ray Payton. This morning I go to the hotel. It's what you call it. The dog uh, uh, Thank you, Miss Caroline. And I think I will talk myself to Ray Payton. Then they tell me at the uh, dog and whistle... Uh, that was here last night. Another gentleman asking for Mr. Payton. Why, James, 
I certainly think you, you might have told... No, Caroline, I thought someone ought to inform Ray of his uncle's death. I... The least one could do, since no one but myself, the members of your intelligence service, knew that he was in King's Abbott at all. Matter of fact, Rafe Payton left the door and was at nine o'clock last night and never came back. Well, what on earth do you think happened to him? Rafe Payton has a right to come and go as he pleases. He might have gone anywhere. He might even have gone back to London. Leaving his luggage behind? I wonder. Oh, by the way, my good Shepherd, that telephone call. Oh, you mean the one that came while you were at the house of Mr. Perron? That Perron. is the one. Tell me, do you think it is possible that someone could have telephoned you and imitated Parker's voice sufficiently to deceive you? Well, he said he was Parker. James really doesn't know Parker's voice well enough. Yeah, of course, of course. But the telephone call was traced this morning by my friend Inspector Hempstead. Uh, it didn't come from Fanny Hall at all. It was put through to you at 9.50 last night from a public call office at King's Abbott Station and at 23 the night mail is for Liverpool. It is the inspector's opinion that the murderer may have left King's Abbott on that very train. Ah, then you do believe that Rafe Payton? I believe nothing, mademoiselle, until it is proved. Well, then, what do you think? I think, Miss Caroline, that uh, Roger Ackroyd was murdered. Outside of that, I think that I will have to think a good deal more. Oh, it's an outrage. That's what it is. A little man, not even an Englishman, a foreigner with moustaches, comes into this home, a British home, a house of mourning, unsolicited, unwelcome. Oh, Mother, do be quiet. Flora, I will not. He comes in here, into my own brother-in-law's house. Questions us like a lot of criminals. Dismatches our kids and kids. Mr. Poirot, you must excuse my mother. My uncle's death was a terrible shock. I understand, mademoiselle. It is very literal that Hercule Poirot does not understand. Honestly, no, Mr. Poirot, you're on the wrong track. Rafe Payton has nothing to do with this crime. The mere fact that he was hard-pressed for money... Was he hard-pressed for money, Mr. Oh, Mr. Raymond? Raymond, now you made it seem as though... Miss Ackroyd, I'm merely telling the truth. Yes, he was hard-pressed. He's always applied to his stepfather for money. But, Mr. Please, Paul, madam, you... was... Had he done so of late, Mr. Raymond? During the last week, for example. Mr. Ackroyd didn't mention such a fact to me. Of course, Mr. Payton will never again have to apply to anyone for money. You mean now. that, uh, Mr. Ackroyd's will... Exactly. After paying certain legacies and bequeaths, servants, charities and so on... Aha, including yourself, uh, Mr. Raymond. Mr. Ackroyd was good enough to remember me to the extent of 1,000 pounds. Well, it's not surprising. Go on, please. Well... Miss Flora Ackroyd inherits £20,000 outright. The residue, including this property and an outstanding control in the business, goes to Rafe Payton. Uh, you have been familiar with this will for some time past, Mr. Raymond. Roger Ackroyd's confidential secretary. Of course, of course. Um, and Mr. Ackroyd possessed a very large fortune indeed, had he not? Fortune that would have been regarded as large even in less tax-ridden times. Then the immediate inheritance of such a large sum would have eased very considerably the present difficulties of Mr. Ray Payton. Mr. Poirot, you don't... Is that so, Mr. Raymond? Yes, that is so. You awful little man, talking that way, when you know how Flora feels about Ralph Patton. The idea that you suspect him of killing his... Him no more than any other, madame. You know what I think? I think Roger's death was an accident. Roger was so fond of handling curios. His hand must have slipped or something. He was really a very strange man. Would you believe it? He never gave Flora and me an allowance. His own family. And of course, we didn't have a penny of our own. Why, at this very if moment... If you ready money, Mrs. Ackroyd, Mr. Ackroyd cashed a check for £100 yesterday for wages and other expenses due today. 
The money was never spent. And where, if you please, is this money? He always kept his cash in his bedroom. I suggest that we see if the money is there. Why, Mr. Porter, surely... Am I to understand, you miserable little foreigner, that you're intimating that I... I merely intimate, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, we see if the money is still there. Ladies and gentlemen, there are here only 60 pounds. Oh, that's impossible. Let me see. 10, 20, 30. The man's right. It is 60. I, this is terrible. Dr. Shepard, Mr. Poirot, I hope nobody believes... One you. must believe there are 60 pounds where they were hundred. However, I'm sure no one would suggest that you, Mr. Raymond, or you, Mrs. Ackroyd, who alone knew of the money... Mr. Poirot, I protest. Just one moment. Go I took the money. I'm a thief. I'm a common, vulgar little thief. Now you know. I'm glad that it's come out. I'm glad also, Miss Flora. You are? Yes, because now we comprehend why Parker thought he saw you coming out of your uncle's room at a quarter of ten. But he did see you coming out of the door. He said so. No, that's just what he did not see. He saw Miss Flora outside the door with her hand on the handle. He did not see Miss Flora come out of the study for a good reason. Miss Flora was never in the study. But where else could she have been? Perhaps on the stairs. Well, those stairs only lead to Mr. Ackroyd's bedroom. Precisely. Then you knew I took the 40 pounds? I knew nothing, but I suspected much. As even now, I suspect that this money you have taken, you did not take it for yourself. I took it for myself. You can take what steps you please. I assure you, Miss Ackroyd, no steps will be taken. Only one thing... Why did you not tell me sooner? Me, Hercule Poirot, who in the end will know everything. Why do not all of you tell me the truth? Just because Flora made a little mistake. That's no Silence, to... silence, madame. Ladies and gentlemen, I am amazed. I, my powers might not be what they were. In all probability, this is the last case I shall ever investigate. But Hercule Poirot does not end with a failure. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, I mean to know, and I shall know in spite of you all. How do you mean, in spite of us all? But just that, monsieur. Every one of you in this room is concealing something from me. It may be something trivial, which is supposed to have no bearing on the case... Each one of you has something to hide. I appeal to you. Tell me the truth now. The old truth. Miss Laura, my good shepherd, Mrs. Ackroyd, Parker, Mr. Raymond. Will no one speak? Uh. Uh. It is a pity. You are listening to Orson Welles in the Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd with Edna May Oliver. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Meantime, I'd like to call your attention to this interesting fact. Authorities tell us the young people of today are healthier than the youth of any previous generation. And they say that a big contributing cause is the broader use of the right kind of foods. Take soup, for example. Women have always realized the value of good soup in the weekly diet. But it took a long time to make it. Then came Campbell's soups. And women, one after another, tried them. They compared them for wholesomeness and nourishment with their own homemade soups. They saw how much their families enjoyed the fine flavor of these soups of Campbell's. And because women no longer had to find time to make it, soup began to come to the table more and more frequently. Today, soup figures more importantly than ever before in the preparation of sensible, nourishing family meals. And now Orson Welles continues our presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd with Edna May Oliver. I'm a village surgeon, and Hercule Poirot is a distinguished Belgian detective, so it was scarcely for me to tell him I thought he was wasting his time. It was certainly not for me to tell him that he was getting on my nerves. Not that I didn't admire his extraordinary cleverness on the inside. Poirot's right, for instance, about the dagger. Police investigation confirmed his suspicion that the fingerprints on the handle of the dagger were those of Roger Ackroyd, the murdered man. Though the position of the dagger definitely precluded suicide. It was Poirot who established that it had not been Parker, the butler, who summoned me on the phone that night to what had become a house of death. And again, it was Hercule Poirot who made it indubitably clear that nobody had seen Roger Ackroyd alive after 9.30, at which time Raymond, the secretary, had heard Ackroyd's voice in the study. In spite of all this, it seemed to me that Hercule Poirot was making little real progress in solving the mystery of Roger Ackroyd's death. Furthermore, it seemed to me a curious thing for a detective of his self-proclaimed standing to be spending so much of his precious time in idle chatter with my sister, Caroline. I had a very interesting chat with Mr. Boyrot, James. He thinks me uh, very intelligent. So you've told me. Is it just a coincidence, Caroline, that on those occasional mornings when the bacon is both warm and crisp, it should be so far away from me that I can't reach it? Too much bacon isn't good for you. No such thing as too much bacon. And I'll be the judge of what's good for me. I rather fancy that at least is something I know best, Caroline. Hmm. You know so many things, James. You're so self-complacent. That's why it's difficult to talk to you. That's why you get the idea that I, that people, are trying to pump you. Some more bacon, please. Poirot says I, uh, I make an excellent detective. Did he? Hmm. We had a very interesting chat. I wonder if Monsieur Poirot found it interesting. He said I was more valuable than anyone he's met here. He told me a lot about his life, too. About a mad nephew of his. And you know that Prince Paul of Muritania, the one who just married the dancer? Well, he's I do not I... know her. You do not know her. And I do not care to hear about her or about his mad nephew either. Did he ask you any questions, Caroline? No questions. We just chatted and chatted. More bacon, please. I have a little theory of my own, James. Mr. Poirot didn't ask me, but he might have. Whom do you suspect? I don't suspect anybody. I know. Parker was here in your surgery the morning of the murder. That place is full of poison. 
He's sure to have taken some. As a matter of fact, that's been my theory right along. Roger Ackroyd was poisoned in his food that night. <laughs> He was stabbed in the neck. You know that as well as I do. After death to make a false clue. I examined the body and I know what I'm talking about. That wound wasn't inflicted after death. It was the cause of death. And don't look so omniscient. Next you'll be telling me you know more about medicine than I do. Perhaps you think you could take over my practice. Oh, don't be ridiculous. You know I haven't a license. That afternoon, Caroline had a mahjong party made up of her little group of village gossipers, in whose opinion, I now learned, Rafe Payton was mysteriously concealed somewhere in Cranchester, the only big town in the nearest. Of course, that was true. Uh, Miss Gannett's maid, it seems, had contributed the additional information that while taking a walk that afternoon on Cranchester Road, she'd seen Monsieur Poirot in a large black car coming from that direction. After that, I was not surprised to learn that Monsieur Poirot had been invited to my house for dinner. Caroline believes, whenever possible, in getting her information directly from headquarters. A little more raspberry shape, Mr. Poirot. <laughs> Under no circumstances. I am already, I may not be a corpulent so great. It would hardly become me if I, uh... Well, perhaps, yes. There is no harm in a little raspberry shape. There you are, Mr. Poirot. I beg your pardon, Caroline, if I might have my first healthy. Oh, I'll sort with me, James. There you are. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Poirot, sir. What do you think about Rafe Payton now? What I think would scarcely be regarded as legal evidence in the courtroom, mademoiselle. Dear, 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 mademoiselle. You, you are incredulous, mademoiselle Shepard. I am incredulous. You have a theory, perhaps. I don't have a theory. I know. Oh, Caroline. James, don't meddle about in what you don't understand. There are several points to this case. Yes, mademoiselle. Point number one. Mr. Ackroyd was heard talking to someone after after half past nine. Point number two. At some time during the evening, Rafe Payton must have come in through the window as evidenced by the prints of his shoes. Point number three. Mr. Ackroyd was nervous that evening and could have only admitted someone he knew. Point number four. The person with Ackroyd at 9.30 was asking for money. We know Rafe Payton was in a scrape. Admirable. Oh, and one other thing, Mr. Mr. Poirot. I found out something for you today. The boots Rafe Payton was wearing that night, they were not brown, they were black. Ah, you have found that out for me. Thank you, thank you. You are sure, mademoiselle, they were brown or black? Positive? Too bad. Too bad if they were only black, those boots. I mean, if, if they were. You, you mean... Yes, I understand. Rafe Payton is guilty or innocent according to whether his boots are brown or black. Really, Mr. Poirot? It could easily be. For murder, there was with Mr. Mason so many motives. First motive, blackmail. Rafe Payton may have been the man who blackmailed Mrs. Burroughs. Reason, his general money needs. The second motive, the certainty of a great inheritance through Mr. Eckroyd's death. And the third motive, Caroline? Very simple, very simple. Mr. Ackroyd's violent disapproval of Rafe's proposed marriage to Miss Flora. Well, after listening to you, Caroline, I'd say the case looks very black against him. I haven't a case, James. I know. (laughs) 
Late that afternoon, Monsieur Poirot called on me to ask if I could arrange a little conference around his home that night. There would be present Mrs. Ackroyd, Flora, Raymond and Parker. I think Caroline, who was present when he called, would have given ten years of her life to have been added to the list. For my part, I would have been only too glad to yield up my place among those who in that particular evening gathered around the beaming countenance of the Belgian detective and cucumber breeder. <coughs> yeah, I'm clearing my throat. That is an accepted signal in this country that a meeting is about to begin. Quiet, everybody. I'll read the list. You, you will please answer to your names. Uh, Raymond. Yes. Uh, Parker. Yes, sir. Mrs. Ackroyd. Yes, but I wanted to speak to you. Yes, will be sufficient. Miss uh, Flora. Yes. Say, Flora, what's the meaning of all this? The list I have just read is the list of suspected persons. Every one of you present had the opportunity to kill Mr. Ackroyd. I won't stand for this. I'm going. You will not go, madame. Until you have heard what I have to say, I clear my throat again. <clears throat> And now I commence at the beginning. <clears throat> Until now, ladies and gentlemen, we have all been trying to answer to ourselves one principal question. Who was in the room with Mr. Ackroyd at 9.30? Not Dr. Shepard, since I myself can prove that he was at home. Not Miss Flora, nor Mrs. Ackroyd, nor Mr. Raymond, with whose actions on that evening we are well acquainted. Nor Parker, who has furnished me with a satisfactory alibi. Who then? This is the part of Hercule Poirot, the cleverest, the most audacious question. Was anyone with him? Are you trying to make me out a liar, Mr. Poirot? I tell you, I distinctly heard voices. I distinctly heard the words that Mr. Ackroyd was speaking. Mr. Raymond, the words that Mr. Ackroyd said. The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I believe it is impossible for me to accede to your request. Ha! Huh. Does nothing strike you as odd about him? Their style, for example. No, he frequently dictated letters to me using exactly the same style. That is precisely what I seek to arrive at. Would any man use such a phrase in talking to another, huh? Ha! <laughs> you think not. My friends, you have all forgotten one thing. This stranger who called at the house in the preceding weekend, the firm he represented. You remember, Mr. Raymond? Dictaphone company. A dictaphone? That's what you think. Mr. Ackroyd had promised to invest in a dictaphone, you remember. Me, I had the curiosity to inquire of the company and question their reply, Mr. Raymond, was that Mr. Ackroyd did purchase a dictaphone from their representative. Why he concealed the matter from you, his confidential secretary, I do not know. Must have meant to surprise me with it. Had quite a childish love of surprising people. Oh, there's only one man who could have done it. You mean Ray Pickett? Mother! Oh, let's face it. If he's innocent, he should be able to prove it. If he isn't... If only he'd come forward. That is your advice, Mr. Raymond. That he should come forward. Certainly. Do you know where he is? Me? I know everything. Remember that. The truth of the telephone call of the footprints on the window sill of the hiding place of Ray Pickett. Where is he? Not very far away. Where? In Cranchester. Where? No. He is not in Cranchester. He is here, in the doorway of this room. Right. Hey, my darling. Have I not told you all at least 36 times that it was useless to conceal things from Hercule Poirot? 
that always I discover a little secret. It is my business. From Dr. Shepard's sister Caroline, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I learned that uh, the doctor and Dory Payton, they are old friends. Dr. Shepard knows that things look very black against his friend Payton. He tells him the old story. Yes, he did. He explained to me how suspicion was bound to fall on me, and I had no real alibi. And with the best of intentions, people sometimes make errors. That's why Dr. Shepard consented to do what he could to help Mr. Payton. He was successful in hiding him from the police. Where? In his own house? Uh, no, indeed, Mr. Raymond. You should ask yourself the question that I have borrowed it. If the good doctor is concealing the young man, what place would he choose? It must necessarily be somewhere near at hand. I think of Cranchester, a hotel. No, lodgings, even more impractically. No, where then? Ha <laughs> ha, I have it. A nursing home. I make inquiries. Yes, at one of them, a patient was brought there by the doctor himself early on Saturday morning. That patient, I had no difficulty in identifying him as rapist. He arrived at my house yesterday, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the point of this evening's meeting. Ray Payton says he is innocent of the killing of Roger Ackroyd. Oh, I am. I, I swear by heaven please, I am. Please, Mr. Payton, please. You have just heard Mr. Payton declare his innocent. Yet he has three motives for the murder and no alibi. Well, I certainly don't see how you can sit there. I am possessing the floor, Mrs. Ackroyd. Listen carefully, everybody. To save Mr. Payton, the real criminal must confess. I you speak to you. Hercule Poirot. I know that the murder of Mr. Ackroyd is in this room now, at this table. Tonight! Tomorrow in the morning, the truth goes to the police. You mean you know who? Yes. At the moment, I know. I alone. For the murder of Roger Ackroyd, there is only one way out. And that way does not lead to freedom. And it is to the murder or not that I speak. This is a matter of life and death. And I, Hercule Poirot, am not joking. Good night. What are you doing out there in the hall? Just saying, am I overcome, my dear? Well, aren't you coming in to chat? I'm very tired, Caroline. But at least you can tell me what happened last night. Mr. Poirot told us all about his little gray Phil again. Oh, does he think Rafe Payton is guilty? No. Well, he's crazy. You can go over and tell him so in the morning. Good night, Caroline. very tired. My arm aches from writing. I've written it all out. Now Peyton will be cleared. As I think back, I'm not quite certain why I urged Ackroyd to read that letter before it was too late. Perhaps I subconsciously realized that with a pig-headed chap like that, it had best chance of getting him not to read it. His nervousness that night was interesting psychologically. He knew danger was close at hand, yet he never once suspected me as the blackmail of Mrs. Ferrars. The dagger was an afterthought. I'd thought of a very little weapon of my own, but uh, I saw the dagger lying on the silver table. It occurred to me how, how much better it would be to use a weapon that couldn't be traced to me. I suppose I must have meant to murder him all along. 
soon as I'd heard of Mrs. Farrow's death, I felt convinced that she'd have told him everything before she died. So I went home and took my precautions. The dictaphone he had given me two days before to adjust. Something gone a little wrong with it, and I persuaded Ackroyd I didn't have a go at it instead of sending it back. I did what I wanted to it, took it up with me in my bag, studied that evening. When it was all over, I looked around the room for the door. Quite satisfied, nothing had been left undone. The dictaphone was on the table by the window, time to go off at 9.30. The mechanism of that little device was rather clever, based on the principal alarm clock, and the armchair was pulled out so as to hide it from the door. I never dreamed that Parker would notice that... Notice that chair. Certainly would not have remembered Parker hadn't asked him. Having the American sailor with a toothache call me from King's Abbott that night was a stroke of genius. There's no way for anyone listening to have told that it was not Parker. I still don't know how Poirot sat that one out. My only regret is about Caroline, and yet I feel I can trust Poirot. She'll never know the truth, and I'm glad at that. I shouldn't like her to know she's fond of me, and then, too, she's proud. My death will be a grief to her, but grief passes. When I finished writing, I shall enclose this whole manuscript in an envelope to address it to Poirot. And now, because I'm tired, take some sleeping powders. Because I'm very tired, I will take more sleeping powders than I should. More than anybody should. I suppose I ought to feel sorry. I am sorry. Sorry that Hercule Poirot ever came to King's Abbot to grow his cucumbers. concludes our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Good evening, Creep, and welcome to the Mystery Playhouse. As a return engagement, your Mystery Playhouse brings you tonight a story by one of the great authors of crime fiction, Agatha Christie. This ingenious drama entitled Witness for the Prosecution is one of the prolific Miss Christie's very best. Miss Leslie Wood, star of the recent Broadway play The Assassins, will play the leading role. Witness for the Prosecution is a brilliantly original narrative of the fight for a man's life, with a double surprise at the end. So stand by, Creek, for Agatha Christie's fast-moving yarn of sudden twists and turns. Witness for the Prosecution. Our story begins a little house in the suburbs of the great city. Rich, eccentric old Miss Emily French is half dozing in her rocking chair. And then someone enters her room. Walks up to the rocking chair, looks down on Miss French, and then... Send me the police. Hurry! Miss French has been murdered. 
All right, men. Get all the pictures you can. A murder weapon, a rocking chair, a corpse. Okay, Inspector, we'll get you. Miss Fence wouldn't listen to me, Inspector Einstein. I used to be more than the maid to her. I was her best friend until he came, and now see what happened. All right, Miss McKenzie, relax. Who are you talking about? Mr. Vole, Leonard Vole. I told Miss Fence no good would come of it, but she wouldn't listen to me. She entrusted all her business to him. She even made out a new will, leaving him all her money. Was he here tonight? He was here every night since he met her three months ago. He must have been here tonight. You remember if anyone else came to see Miss French tonight? Not that I know of. Oh, I warned that no good would come of it. Him, 33, and she at least 70. And he killed her. Leonard Bowles killed her. I know he did. <laughs> Leonard Vole. That's right. Inspector Reinstein, Homicide Squad. I'd like to talk with you down at headquarters. What about? Emily French has been murdered. Murdered? But who... What do you want with me? We're booking you on suspicion. But Mr. Mahan, you're my attorney. You've got to believe me. I didn't do it. Take it easy, Bowles. Take it easy. I'm going crazy cooped up in this jail. Listen, why would I kill her? I tell you frankly, I was broke. I hoped to borrow some money from Miss French. So why would I kill her? Don't you know that Miss French left a will leaving all her money to you? What? What are you trying to say? Didn't you know about that? No. Oh, this gets worse every minute. They'll say I, I got Miss French to make out a will, leaving her money to me, and, and that I killed her. Sure, I admit I was there that night, but... As a maid, Janet McKenzie said you were there until half past nine. She said she heard voices in the sitting room where Miss French is out of a man. Half past nine? Yes. Half past nine? Then, then I'm saved. What do you mean, saved? By half past nine, I was at home again. My wife, Romaine, can prove that. The voice the maid heard must have been someone else's. I left Miss French about five minutes to nine. I arrived home about twenty past nine. Mm-hmm. My wife was there waiting for me. That proves I'm innocent, doesn't it? Yes, it does, my boy. The first thing I'm going to do is see your wife and have a talk with her. And that's the whole story, Mrs. Ball. No one else saw Leonard return at 9.20. There'll be no one else to confirm your testimony. I see. Leonard wants me to say that he came in at 20 minutes past nine that night. Is that right? Yes. Uh, he did come in at that time, didn't he? That's not the point. Will my saying so acquitted? Will they believe me? Well, uh, there's a great deal of evidence against him, and the testimony of a devoted wife sometimes... Well, I, I can't promise your testimony will save him. Now, I know what you must feel, but... Do you? I wonder. Well, I mean, all this must be difficult, you being so devoted to your husband. Devoted? Devoted? I hate it! What? I tell you, I hate it! I hope he drops dead if I don't convict him. What the dead? Supposing I tell you that he did not come in that night at 20 minutes past 9, but at 20 minutes past 10. What? You said... 
that Leonard claims he doesn't know anything about the money coming to him. Yes. Well, supposing I tell you that he knew all about it and counted on it and committed murder again. But... Supposing I tell you that he admitted to me that night when he came in what he had done. That there was blood on his coat. What then? Suppose I stand up in court and say all these things. You mean you testify against your husband? Why not? I detest him. He hasn't a chance. Not a chance. Of course not. Did you honestly think he was innocent when you came here to see me today? Yes, I did. I see. And what do you think now? I still think he's innocent. And I think you're lying. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, I'm speaking. Mr. Mayor, my name is Moxley. Mrs. Moxley. Yes? Now, you don't know me. But if you want that painted, brazen woman thrown up for what she is, a liar, you'll come to 1122 Hudson Street tonight. What? Do you mean Mrs. Vaughn? Come and find out. Or lose your case. And bring $300. Now, now, wait a minute. Goodbye. Mrs. Markson. Hello. Hello. If I can prove Mrs. Vaughn is lying, Leonard still has a chance. I'm Mr. Mayhorn. Oh, oh, so you decided to come in. Well, come on in, come on. I see you're looking at the scars around my face. Are you wondering why I hide my beauty, dear? Would you like to see? Oh, I wasn't. Do you tell me? Here. Never mind. Never mind. I'll cover my face with a scarf again. But you don't feel like kissing me, do you? And I don't blame you. And yet, I was a pretty girl once. And not so long ago as you'd think either. Vitriol, my dear, vitriol. That's what did that to my face. But I'll be even with her. I can give you proof that Romaine Vole has lied about her husband. Proof? What kind of proof? What did you say to a letter? A letter from her. Well, how did you get hold of it? Never that? mind how I got hold of it. That's my business. But it'll do the trick, all right. Now, $300. All right. But first, the letter, if you please. Mm. Just right here in this desk. Here they are. A whole bundle of them. But it's the top one you want. Thank you. Now, come on. Go on and read it. Well, these are love letters written by Romaine Vole. But they're not written to Leonard. Yes, yes. 
This one is dated the day of Leonard's arrest. How did you get hold of this correspondence? That would be telling. These letters are addressed to Max. Max who? Who is he? Read the letters and you'll see. And I know something more, too. You'll find out where she was at 20 past 10 the time she said she was at home. Huh? Ask at the Pingelbahn dancing school. You ask Mr. Pingelbahn. Mr. Pingelbahn. All right. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. You won't go yet. Where's my money? Here you are. $300. Hmm. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. I'm sorry to intrude, but it's about the Leonard Ball murder case. Oh. Hedrick, stop the piano. Well, what can I do for you? I have a photograph here. Could you identify this woman? Uh, let me see. Why, uh... Why, yes, that's Romaine Ball. Oh, she's one of my advanced students. Very artistic. In fact, she used to be an actress. Oh, never mind all that. Was she here the night of the murder? Why, yes. I, I remember we all discussed it the next day. What time did she leave? Well, I, I think the class broke up at 10.30 or so that night. Oh, class, please. Mrs. Ferretan, pull in your stomach. How many times have I told you? Posture, posture. Uh, Mr. Pingelbahn, you may be called upon at the trial tomorrow to testify that Mrs. Ball was here at 10.30 that night. Me? A witness in a murder trial? Yes. Oh, I'd love it. Order, please, or I shall have this courtroom cleared. Call the next witness for it. Did McKenzie to the stand? You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God? I do. Sit down. You may proceed, Mr. Prosecutor. Thank you, Your Honor. Oh, Miss General McKenzie, what was your relationship to Miss Finch? I was her maid. Then you were in her confidence? Oh, yes. We kept no secrets from each other. Did she tell you that she had made out a will, leaving all her money to Leonard Bowles? Yes. Now, think carefully, Miss McKenzie. Did Mr. Bowl know that such a will had been drawn up? Yes, he did. Ah, uh, Miss McKenzie, will you please tell this court, in your own words, what transpired in the home of Miss French on the night of your mistress's death? Well, I, I was to go out for the evening. I did go out, but about half past nine, I returned. I heard voices in the parlor. One was Miss French's, and the other was a man's. Did you recognize that man's voice? Yes, it was Mr. Vole. That's all? Thank you. Uh, just a moment, Miss McKenzie. Yes? You say that you heard a man's voice in the sitting room that night. 
Did you see that man? No, I didn't. Then how can you be sure that it was Mr. Vole who was there? Well, I think it was Mr. Vole. You think it was? That's all, Mr. Kenton. want us to believe that you visited this rich old lady, Miss French, out of pure kindness of heart, a woman 40 years your senior. You want us to believe that, Mr. Bowles? I only want... You to... look pale, Mr. Bowles. Would you like a glass of water? No. It's my heart. Will you please tell this court where you were at 9.30 on the night of the murder? But I told you. I left Miss French's house about five minutes to nine. I arrived home about 20 past nine. My wife was there waiting for me. Ask her. She'll tell you the truth. I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. I'm innocent, I tell you. As God is my witness, I'm innocent. The prosecution falls as its next witness, Mrs. Romaine Bowles. Romaine Bowles to the stand, please. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Sit down. Um, your name is Romaine Bowles? Yes. Did your husband ever tell you that he knew that the money was coming to him? That he knew about the will? Yes. He knew about the will. Now, Mrs. Bowles, you have sworn to tell the truth. Mr. Bowles says that he was home by 9.30 that night. Is that true? No, it is not true. Will you tell the court what you know about the night in question? Yes. Leonard was with me early in the evening. About eight o'clock, he put on his hat and coat and left the house. He returned at 20 minutes past ten. And when he came in, I knew something terrible had happened. He wouldn't look at me. He just walked into the kitchen. His coat was stained with blood. I realized then that he had murdered Miss Trent. No, no. No, Romain, why are you lying? Order, order. That will be all, Mrs. Bowles. One moment. I have a few questions for the witness for the prosecution. Mrs. Bowles, you heard Mr. Bowles cry out in his torment that you were lying. Are you? I am not lying. You are. And I'll tell you why. And I'll prove it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I want you to understand that this woman's story is a malicious fabrication from start to finish. I want you to know that she wasn't even in her own house at the time in question. I want you to know that she is in love with another man and has been deliberately seeking to send Bold to his death for a crime he did not commit. <laughs> First of all, Mrs. Bowles, do you still claim that you were at home when he passed ten? Yes, that's when Leonard came home. I want you to look at the witnesses sitting at that end table. Uh, Mr. Pinglebarn, will you stand up, please? Gladly. Mrs. Bowles, do you recognize this man? Yes. Mr. Pinglebarn runs a dancing school. Will you deny that you were at one of his classes until 10.30 on the night in question, or shall I take this court's time to call Mr. Pinglebarn and his class to the stand to prove that you were with him? No. 
No others out tonight. Then you were not at your home at 10.30. I... You were home at 9.30 when Leonard came home, but you hurried away to your class, and you were there until after 10.30. Is that right? Well, I... I'm afraid Mr. Tingleborn and his class can prove that. Exactly. And now... Now I should like to place in evidence this letter written by Romaine Vole to another man. Clerk, you may read the letter. Here you are. Max Beloved, the fates have delivered him into our hands. He has been arrested for murder. The murder of an old lady. Leonard, who would not hurt a fly. At last I shall have my revenge. I shall say that he came in that night with blood upon him. That he confessed to me. I shall hang him, Max. And when he hangs, he will know and realize that it was Romaine who sent him to his death. And then, happiness, beloved. Happiness at last. Mrs. Rowe, look at this letter. Yes? You deny having written this letter? I... Will you admit it, or shall I be experts who are present prove that this letter is in your handwriting? Mrs. Bowles, did you write this letter? I... Yes, I wrote it. This is my chance to get rid of it. That's why I made up the whole story. I'll tell you, he did return to the house at one minute past nine, but... But when I realized that only my testimony could prove his innocence, I... I decided to invent a story out of whole thoughts to ruin it. And now I've ruined everything. I've ruined it. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we have proven that Romaine Vole's evidence was a tissue of lies from beginning to end. We have shown that she evolved it out of her passionate hatred for the defendant. And since the chief witness for the prosecution has confessed to her false story, confirming Mr. Vole's statement that he was not at Miss French's house at 9.30, I ask that you bring in the only possible verdict. Not guilty. Find the defendant not guilty. Congratulations, folks. Did you hear that? You're a free man again. Free? That's the most exciting I... My heart... What is it, man? I I can't breathe. Mr. Bowles. Not guilty. Bowles! Stand back. Stand back. Give him air. Please. Please. Leonard, somebody do something. Will you all stand back and be quiet, please? I think... Yes. He's dead. Perhaps dead. It's hard to say. Mrs. Bowles. I know you loved him very much. 
your name. Here. I know you didn't hate him. But how did you know? We're all creatures of habit. And you have a habit. The gesture of your hand that you use when you're excited. Gesture of my hand? Yes. Mrs. Modson in Hudson Street had that same gesture. Oh. Are you there? Yes. And you were formerly an actress. I learned that from Mr. Tinglebaum. I can see now how you did it. Well, it was easy enough. Make up for my face. The light of that gas jet was too bad for you to see the makeup. But why, Mrs. Vore? Why? Mr. Mann. I had to save him. The evidence of a wife devoted to him would not have been enough. He said as much yourself. That's right. But I know a little something of psychology. And I thought, let me, his wife, testify against him and then let it be proven that I had deliberately lied. Well, I was the star witness for the prosecution. When you destroyed my testimony, you destroyed the prosecution's entire case. And the bundle of letters? Oh. One alone, the vital one, might have seemed like a put-up job, so I just don't remember. Mm. Then the man called Max. He... He never existed. Mm -hmm. I still think that we could have gotten him off by the normal procedure. I didn't dare risk it. You see, you thought he was innocent. And you knew it. I see. My dear Mr. Mayhem, you do not see a trouble. I knew he was guilty. And that was the excellent Campbell's Playhouse with the murder of Roger Ackroyd and the Mole Mystery Theatre's version of Witness for the Prosecution. Marvellous stuff. Just time to see who the hell that Hollywood legend was. Well, are you in the school of comedians of Harold Lloyd? Are you in the school of comedians of Harold Lloyd? Yes! Mr. Sir? Was there a picture recently made based on allegedly the story of your life? Yes. <laughs> Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton is right. Yes, it was Buster Keaton. Kind of difficult to pin the voice down when you only know them for the face. Still, I'm sure the smarty pants amongst you will have got it. More Who the Hell is That Hollywood Legend next week. That's all we have time for today. I have an absolute batch movie to tell you about on this week's bonus show which is out in a day or two one of the craziest movies i've ever seen the opening three minutes blew my tiny mind so keep your eyes peeled for that coming soon this weekend's film club sees errol flynn and basil rathbone squaring off again so i'll see you there if you're a patron if you're not a patron then sign up now it only takes a moment and you get a ton of bonus materials including i'm delighted to say the new secret history of hollywood episode carrie yes carrie is officially coming in july and patrons on the preview tier will be getting the whole thing a week or two before the rest of the world get it so sign up now 
and enjoy hundreds of bonuses, including over 70 bonus editions of this very podcast, entirely exclusive to patrons. Just go to www.patreon.com slash secrets or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Until next time then, folks. Thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure to spend some time with you. So from Dame Agatha and myself, take superb care of yourselves and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.